following message is from a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. It's good to be with you this Sunday morning. For the benefit of those who do not know me, let me do a quick introduction. My name is A.B. Matthew, and I have the joy and privilege of serving here at ICC as one of the elders. It's a twofold blessing, actually. One, I get to meet so many of you and get to share in your life journey and understand a little bit more. And I know many of you pray for us, too. Secondly, I serve alongside three wonderful men, Andy Ostrowski, Pastor Peter, and Dr. Steve, three men of God who genuinely love the Lord and love the church and have immense wisdom and humility, and I learned so much from them. So it is a blessing indeed to be a part of this leadership. I'm married to Jamsi. We have three adult children who grew up at ICC. Two of them were baptized here, and my youngest is here with us today. And we have a dog named Luna. Um, I recently, about five months ago, joined a Chicago-based company to lead the enterprise data and analytics team. When I'm not working, I indulge in a couple of passions, uh, puzzles and sports. I solve all kinds of puzzles, and I watch sports, all kinds of sports. I don't play them anymore. Well, today's sermon is titled, The Joy of Giving, The Joy of Giving, I've given it a subtitle. Love is a four-letter word, spelt G-I-V-E. Love is a four-letter word, spelt G-I-V-E. At some point in the near future, we are hoping to have our own facility. Nothing has been finalized. There are still some wrinkles to be ironed out. But it would not be unwise for us to be prepared for that eventuality. During our 17 years of existence as a church, we rented from three schools and from two churches, not counting the homes and basements we met during our formation days. The first school was Adolf Link School in Elk Grove Village. We were so few that everybody in church had a responsibility. All our church's positions fit into one trailer that would be transported to church each Sunday, and we would set up the chairs and the curtains and the banners and the sound system and the projection screen and the children's arts and crafts, and suddenly the school would be magically transformed into a place of worship. My daughter Grace and I were going down memory lane just last night, going through some of these pictures, and we were thinking, putting these frames together for the projection screen was one of the more strenuous tasks that everyone on the setup team and teardown teams had to master. Over time, everyone learned how to lay the chairs at the precise angle relative to the grain of the polished floor of the gym. And at the end of service, all these things were put together back into the trailer, and voila, it was a school again. We would vanish without a trace except for an occasional stain on the carpet. 
We went on to outgrow that school, as well as the next two schools, Meade Junior High in Elk Grove and Helen Keller Junior High in Schomburg. And running out of trailer space and school choices, we finally decided to rent a church, NPC, which was our first foray into wheeling. A couple of years later, we outgrew that as well and moved to this location. And our hosts have been so gracious to accommodate us, all our needs. Wheeling seems to be a midway location for all our attendees. At each point in our church's journey, God always graciously provided exactly what we needed. If we do move forward with this new facility, it'll be a huge undertaking and will require a lot of our time and money and sweat and prayers from all of us. So how do we do it and how can we make sure we get it right? We need to understand not only the external actions and the efforts required to fulfill the objective, but grasp the spiritual dimension, the heart condition, the transformation, and the relationships that God wants from us. Please join me in a word of prayer before we look into the word. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and specifically for the passage we'll be looking at today. We thank you for preserving it and passing it down to us so we could learn from it. Help us to accurately present your word with all humility and sincerity, depending on your spirit's power and not my own. Please open our eyes that we may learn what it means to give and serve with the right heart and the right motivation, and that we would understand your eternal purposes and perspectives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today is Super Bowl 58. Chicago is not playing, so I can watch stress-free. Uh, I usually support the underdog, but in this case, I'm still deciding who the underdog is, really. Uh, lots of people will be watching it just for the, for the commercials, right? Just to see the ads. Do you know how much an ad costs to be shown during Super Bowl? That's a huge number. Last year, a 30-second spot was $7 million. Just imagine, just imagine, what if miraculously one of those companies, instead of buying the ad, decided to glorify God and give the money to ICC? <laughs> well, miracles are possible, but today's message is about giving. And it's an important principle, even if we get the miraculous gift. I searched through the Bible for events related to massive projects and how God's people went about doing them and the lessons we can learn. The first one chronologically and ironically was the Tower of Babel. But that is an example that we shouldn't <laughs> do. We have other examples, like Noah building the ark. Moses building the tabernacle in the wilderness. David preparing his son Solomon to build the temple. Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And Paul's fundraising efforts. Today we'll focus on the last one. The one that probably most of us may not have 
spend much time hearing about. That's Paul's efforts to collect money for the impoverished churches in Judea, which is outlined in his second letter to the Corinthians. This story is not readily recognizable, like Noah's Ark, for example. But yet, as we study the New Testament, there is no doubt that Paul, who wrote 14 of the 66 books of the Bible, was extremely passionate about it. We see him referencing, referencing this initiative in at least four of his letters to the Galatians, to the Romans, and in two letters to the Corinthians. It's also referenced in the Acts, written by Paul's traveling companion, Luke. I want to try and paint a picture of the background so we can get some context. And for the next 35, 40 minutes, please hang on to the edge of your seats because we'll be going through something that we have never tried here before. We'll be trying to cover two chapters in one sermon. We usually do one verse at a time. Just to get our geographical bearings. Um, so I'll spend quite a bit of time in this context so that I don't have to read the two chapters. Um, Jerusalem and the Judean churches are in the bottom right-hand corner that I circled in blue. The yellow circle represents Galatia and Asia. Modern-day Turkey, where he established churches like Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, etc. during his first trip. The red and green circles further west represent Macedonia and Achaia, respectively, regions in modern-day Greece, where he established churches during his second missionary trip. Macedonian churches were churches like the ones in Philippi, Thessalonica, where he, to both of whom he wrote letters to. Achaia's only church of any significance at that time was Corinth. Sparta and Athens didn't have churches at that time. Paul re revisited many of these churches, and in between he would write letters to them. That's how he corresponded. There was no emails and phone calls, and many of them are, found its way into our Bible. At the time of Paul, the Roman Empire occupied pretty much everything that you see on this map plus more. Now, as Paul traveled to Asia Minor, establishing new churches, and to Macedonia, the churches, churches back in Jerusalem and the surrounding Judea were struggling from abject poverty. How did that happen from the time of Jesus about 15, 20 years ago to now when the churches were struggling? Well, Jesus came. The people were persecuted. The Christians who, or the people who became Christians were persecuted by the religious leaders and were losing their jobs and their means of livelihood. They managed for a while by pooling their resources, as we see in Acts 2, 3, and 4. However, to exacerbate matters, the region was ravaged by famines during the reign of Claudius Caesar. But Paul, deeply moved by the plight of the Jerusalem churches, made fervent pleas to several churches. And each time he went back to Jerusalem, he carried offerings with him from these churches. The Corinthians now were much richer than the Macedonians, but they were a tough church. In fact, Paul had written at least four letters to them. And like I said, there was no internet in those days. Only two of them survived, probably because 
they were they had weightier matters and they had they were read and reread and widely distributed and those two letters became the first and second corinthians during his first visit to corinth he stayed with them for 18 months and during his second visit he stayed with them for 3 months why is that important because he knew them like a father knowing his children he knew the factions he knew the heresies he knew the philosophies that were tugging them in different directions the city was a melting pot of jewish greek and roman influences and the corinthian church was a microcosm of that city so second corinthians 8 and 9 represent a reminder of paul's plea from first corinthians that he gave to the judean to give to the judean believers when paul had first mentioned the dire need of the jerusalem church they had immediately jumped on the bandwagon and were enthusiastic to give and even gave a token gift but sometime later they developed cold feet i think or maybe they were riven by internal squabbles so he wrote second corinthians a year later and the time he dedicated two entire chapters we won't go through them because we don't want to do a three part series we will use selected passages to understand paul's heart for the church because the corinthians were slackers god gave paul an opportunity to expound the principles of joyful giving the culture language time period needs were different from ours but i believe the principles are applicable to us today and it reveals god's heart for us so let's dig in finally huh? <laughs> in our time together we'll first establish so just five points bear with me i had nine points initially <laughs> uh dr steve talked me down from that <laughs> first we'll establish the rationale or the basis for giving we'll spend a lot of time on this because it will address the question why give then we'll look at guidance around how much to give how much to give hint it's not a numeric answer we'll next look at the principle of accountability in giving accountability next we will examine our attitude while giving and we'll finally conclude with the impact of giving what is the result of giving what happens when we give so why do we give we'll start from the beginning second corinthians 8:1 to 4 and now brothers and sisters feel free to follow on the screen or if you have your own bibles um you can open them we'll be spending most of our time in these two chapters And now dear brothers and sisters we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity for i testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the lord's people we see paul boasting about the generosity of the macedonian churches and using them as an example to the corinthian church to follow 
Paul is pre- presenting a church on fire, or churches, because there were multiple churches in Macedonia. Which planet were they from? They were begging for the privilege to give. Who begs to give? In spite of going through hardships themselves, they have an overflowing joy that leads to generosity. Not a so-so type of generosity, but rich generosity. But even though he uses glowing words to describe them, note that he begins by pointing first, not to the generosity of the Macedonians, but the grace of God given to the Macedonians. Their giving is dependent on God giving them grace and is therefore an outflow of the grace and generosity of God. Painting a vivid picture of verse 2, John Stott writes in his book, The Grace of Giving, three tributaries came together in the river of Macedonian generosity, namely their severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty. This is my crude visualization of what Stott was expressing. I used tributaries in red to show the negatives and green to show the positives. There's only one positive, but it's so overwhelmingly positive that the main river takes its characteristic. Paul is not done talking of grace. He delves deeper into the grace of God in verse 9 to make sure the Corinthians understand the significance of grace in giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. By referring to rich and poor, Paul is not talking of bank balance or material possessions. While on the subject of money, Paul smartly uses monetary language of rich and poor to drive home a spiritual message. How did Christ become poor and how did that make us rich? Philippians 2, 7 and 8 gives us the answer. Rather, he made himself nothing. In other words, poor. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how Christ became poor. He left his godhood and became man. He served others and then accepted the worst punishment man could endure. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave, he gave his one and only son. God gave us his all. So if we have been saved by grace through faith, and if Christ is our Lord and Savior, then We are made rich through the free but precious gift of salvation. Our life, our soul, our everything belongs to him. If we find it hard to give, we have to remind ourselves that nothing really belongs to us. As Tim Keller pointed out in his book, Generous Justice, how God's grace makes us just, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are really not yours, but God's. Paul first uses the Macedonians as an example of giving. Then, as we read in verse 9, he says there is an even better example. 
even better example. The Corinthian standard for giving should be Christ, who gave everything. Where did the Macedonians get their overflowing joy from? It was available to them by the grace of Christ. Again, this is my visualization of Paul's argument. The Corinthians also have the same grace available. Ergo, they should have overflowing joy that should, reach to, that should lead to rich generosity. Paul is brilliant, isn't he? If the Macedonians could have joy and lead to generosity, but the source is the grace of Christ, similarly, the Corinthians should do that too. So the Corinthian example is actually Christ. Someone once said, you can give without loving, but you cannot, you cannot love without giving. You cannot love without giving. If we ponder over that statement a little bit, we have to admit that a selfish Christian is a bit of an oxymoron. And that's why I subtitled this message, Love is a Four-Letter Word, spelled G-I-V-E. To recap this first section, why should we give? John Piper summarized it better than I could. I tried. In his book, Desiring God, he says, love is the overflow of joy, which gladly meets the needs of others. It's the impulse of a fountain, fountain to overflow. It originates in the grace of God, which overflows freely because it delights to fill the empty. This is the basis of our giving. And it's true not only when it comes to money, but also the giving of our time, our energy, our skills, our prayer, our attention, using our influence, standing in the gap for others. And it also holds true whether you're giving to the church or to a mission organization or to a charity or a neighbor who is in need or to any other genuine cause we are being called to give. Next point is how much should we give? How much should we give? There's always a debate about what the Bible teaches about how much to give. Old Testament versus New Testament, Old Covenant versus New Covenant. In fact, I was going to speak about tithes and offering, but again, that would be another four-part series. I wish I had the time to get into the details, perhaps another time, but for today, we will look at two guidelines that Paul gives about how much to give that will be instructive to us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 11 to 12, Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Here we see that God accepts our giving simply based on what we have based on our means, not some standard that is impossible for us to meet. We contribute a portion of what we have as a, an act of grace and love. And it is up to us, not according to some set amount that would be unfairly difficult for some and unfairly easy for others. Sometimes we underestimate what we think we have or what we think we can do. If it is money, we think, oh, I'm not rich. Let the rich people give. If it requires skills, oh, let the people who are gifted do it. If it is missions, oh, let the real missionaries or let John go. 
If it is prayer, let the pastors pray or let Bob the deacon pray. And thus we lose our opportunity to meet someone at their point of need, even if God has given us something we can give. January 2015 was one of the big losses of my life. My mother was in the last stages of her battle with cancer in India. ICC had been praying for her. We had gone as a family back to India to be with her for a few weeks. My children and I got back to the US so they could do their final exams while John C. stayed back in India to care for my mother. Within a week after I returned, my mother passed away. Although I knew the end was coming, I was devastated at the suddenness of it. My kids bravely told me to go back and attend the funeral and they would manage on their own. I was worried about leaving them alone. So only John C. attended the funeral I watched online. A couple of days later, after Sunday morning church service, one of the first people who came to me hearing the news was Sean. He probably does not remember this now. And I apologize for not taking your permission. Standing in the school hallway, he saw my sorrow. And unmindful of the crowd, he prayed the most comforting prayer of my life. Sorry. At the end, I was clinging to him, not wanting to let go. He gave a precious gift that day, the gift of prayer and care that carried me through for a long time. Sean was not a pastor or part of a prayer ministry. He was on the worship team, as he is today. But God used his willingness to use what he had to bless me. I hope I didn't embarrass you, Sean. For those of us who struggle to give to the church or to others because we don't know what others need or what we have that can be given, I will let you in on Sean's secret. I did not realize it then, but I found it in one of Dallas Willard's books about hearing God's voice which is meant for our relationship with God, but I believe it's applicable here too. He writes in Hearing God, the first act of love is always the giving of attention. The first act of love is always the giving of attention. The gift of being attention helps become aware of and sensitive to the needs of others. Giving starts from being attentive and being in the moment. That's how all our ministries have started, including the food pantry. Sorry. When I practiced this morning, it, I didn't cry. <laughs> Paul does give an additional guidance, and we see that in 2 Corinthians 8.3. For I testify that they, referring to the Macedonians, gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. 
The Macedonians were poor themselves, but they gave beyond what they were able when they heard of another church in another land of a different race and culture suffering. Our giving ought to be sacrificial or going beyond our ability. Such kind of giving has been referred to as radical generosity. Perhaps a poor analogy would be I'm a a size nine shoes, probably walking around in a pair of shoes that's maybe eight and a half or eight. Um, I might squirm for a while. It might be uncomfortable, but I think eventually I might get used to it. I don't know. Don't ask me to wear tight jeans, but I will not do that. Um, So how much should we give? We take the two guidelines that Paul just laid out. One is give according to your means, and the other is to give beyond your ability and blend them together. We give generously and we give sacrificially with our giving, but still what we have, not what others have. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his profound book, Mere Christianity, which many of you may have read in a chapter titled Social Morality. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. Move on to the next point, which is our third point. And if you are confused where we are, just look at the top right-hand corner. I tried to put a little sticky there to say we are, okay, now we are talking about accountability, so we are in the third point. Um, So moving to the next point, it's an important aspect of giving, which is accountability. And I'm happy to find Paul addressing it here. In the latter section of chapter 8, Paul mentions a self-directed principle, self-directed. That would be good for us to take note as a church. What is more, he... Oh, I'm still at... Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was wondering. Second um, Corinthians chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. What is more, he, referring to Titus, was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our willingness to, our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Paul was collecting an offering, and he wanted to make sure it was built around trust. Trust. To do just that, the church has selected a trustworthy man, Titus, to handle the special offering and to deliver it to the believers in Jerusalem. This is a good model for any church or organization to follow. Accountability and integrity should be the underpinnings of any capital campaign or fundraising drive. And that's why at ICC, we have tried to be completely transparent about how much money we collect, how much money is used, and for what purposes. And you would have noticed that in last week's annual meeting. If we do purchase a facility, it would mean greatly increased financial and accounting complexity. We would even consider hiring the services of an accounting firm. As we move into this new chapter as a church, we want to ensure that we are completely accountable. And that brings us to our fourth point. We're 
moving along fairly quickly. I see all of you still wide awake. Thank you for that. <laughs> now that we have seen the basis for giving, the guidelines for how much to give, the accountability while giving, we move to chapter 9. We are done with 8. What is our attitude while giving? This is where we look at our heart. In this section, we will look at verse 7 and parse it in, in three pieces, uh, pausing at each point because it encapsulates beautifully and concisely what the heart attitude should be. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. From the first part of this verse, Paul is telling the Corinthians to give what they had previously decided. It should be an intentional, purposeful decision made through prayer and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The second part, not reluctantly or under compulsion. What is not reluctantly or under compulsion? It's pretty straightforward, right? It means giving wholeheartedly. We should not give because of legalism or obligation, nor out of the fear of rejection or a feeling of self-satisfaction or pride or for buying influence. We should give for the right reasons, right? Without complaining, without grumbling. Another heart attitude is contained in the same verse in the last phrase, for God loves cheerful giver. So putting those three together, decide in your hearts what we want to give. Make sure it's wholehearted without complaining and grumbling, done for the right reasons, and give with cheer and overflowing joy. This verse makes it clear that while giving is an outward action, it is an expression of the heart. For those who are already giving and feeling burnt out, Check your heart. Why are you giving? And for those who are not giving, check your heart. Why are you not giving? Our motivation for giving should be love. The love that God shows us. And our basis for giving is the grace that God gives us. Our heart should be a reflection of what God has done for us. An act of worship to our God. Serving God in the welcoming ministry or in the children's ministry or in the worship ministry cannot be done with a reluctant and complaining heart. It is done with love. In the famous love chapter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13.3, if I give all I possess, like one of the rich philanthropists Chuck Feeney did, he gave away, gave away about $8 billion. If I give away all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. So several years back, when faced with tight cash flow at home, and when I was the only one working, um, I was tempted to cut down on all our expenses, including our giving. To the church and to the charitable organizations we support. But it was the same godly voice of my wife 
Jamsi, who insisted that we should cut all our expenses, but we give to God as we have planned and decided in our hearts, till we reach a point where we just cannot anymore. And God has continued to bless that decision. Even through my job loss last year when I was out of job for three months, he provided amazingly. That brings us to the last point. Point number five. The impact of our giving. What happens as a result of our giving? What are the blessings? Is the blessings only for the receiver or for the giver? Is it material or spiritual blessings? In chapter nine, while it's a continuation from the previous chapter, we see a twist. I wish I had the time to read the whole two chapters. You would see the twist immediately. In chapter 8, Paul bragged about the Macedonians to the Corinthians, right? And in chapter 9, he does a full disclosure. He reveals to the Corinthians that he had also bragged about them to the Macedonians, saying that they were the first ones to jump on the bandwagon last year and had used the Corinthians' enthusiasm to set an example for the Macedonians. See how clever Paul is. He was creating a bit of a friendly competition between the Greek churches, much like our softball and volleyball rivalries today. Well, at a spiritual realm. For I know your eagerness to help, 2 Corinthians 9.2. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give. Your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. When Paul refers to Achaia, if you remember from the map, it's primarily Corinth, right? When the Macedonians heard from Paul of the eagerness of the Corinthians to give, it inspired them to give. And then he wanted the Corinthians to fulfill their promise that had stirred the churches in the first place. So one of the impacts of our giving is that it sets an example to inspire others to give. Our generosity begets generosity. Now, of course, that's not practical, right? I mean, we, cannot, we are not expected to announce to the church what we are giving so it will inspire others to give, right? But maybe one way is to make it practical is by maybe volunteering to serve in the church, and others might see that as an example and get inspired by that. At our church late last year, someone found another creative way to inspire. These pictures are from, I think, a couple of years ago, though. When we did the sheep project for Capsuar Kenya, an anonymous donor agreed to match every contribution that we make dollar for dollar that means our contributions would get doubled. That inspired another anonymous donor, donor to match again, and that means our contributions would be tripled. I don't know who these donors are, but God, may God bless them. But all I know is our $6,500 in contributions became 19500 With that, we were able to bless many needy people in, in Kenya. Besides inspiring others to give, our giving can result 
in a cascade of blessings as we see in 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What this verse says is that as we give, God will bless you abundantly so that you can continue to give and bless others even more. That is how giving becomes larger and larger and blessings don't stop. They multiply. So the purpose of our blessing is to give. And the purpose of our giving, no, the purpose of our giving is not to get blessed, but is to give. (laughs) Uh, It's an outflow of our joy. This kind of giving sets off a domino effect of overflowing joy, thanksgiving, and praise, which Paul describes beautifully in the last section. I will only read this last verse, 2 Corinthians 9.13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Ultimately, all praise will go to God as a result of generous giving. As a recipient of God's blessings, I can praise God and I can testify about his goodness and what he has done through the generosity of several families here. But I can only share one example. When we moved from Las Vegas to Chicago, Jonathan was six months old. And Timothy and Grace came in quick succession. With no family here, we were pretty much on our own. Jamsi stayed home with the kids. I don't think she likes this picture. (laughs) And I went to work. I did not realize how much she struggled taking care of three kids under the age of four at the same time. Not only that, she had been dealing with severe back problems due to multiple slip discs. We barely made it to church. Knowing our spiritual, emotional, and mental state, a few small groups from our church, this was before ICC, graciously invited us to join their groups, but we declined, as there was no way we could go with our little ones. One family did not give up trying. They came up with several ideas on how we could meet, and, but all their ideas were met with our staunch rebuttal. Like the Macedonians, they pleaded with us for an opportunity to bless us. Finally, they came up with a plan that we could not refuse. I wanted to say an offer we could not refuse. but They told us they would bring their own children to babysit our three kids so just the two couples could do Bible study and fellowship at our home. We finally relented. And they came week after week after week. And we were able to have fellowship and gain um, the company of adult friends and our spiritual nourishment. This is the picture after one of those fellowship times. Do they look familiar? Yes, that's the Taglays, probably, I think, 23 years ago. It is no coincidence that when ICC was planted, our two families were together in line to sign up. Rod and Nessie have done this not just for us, but for so many others 
They have given of themselves in so many different ways. I may not be standing here, but for the grace of God and the people of God like them who gave of themselves to bless other families. As we give towards a potential building project, let us not lose sight of God's vision for our church. To continue to reach people with the gospel and the love of Christ. To reconcile others to God. To do that, we will need to continue to expand our missions, our community outreach, our discipleship programs, our fellowship programs, our prayer ministry, our children's ministry, our youth ministry, and other ministries that God puts on your hearts. I would like to close this time by quoting Scott J. Haefman, who summarized it so well. Giving is an act of faith in response to God's grace. As such, our giving is not a decision to participate in the projects of the church, but an expression of the fact that we are the church. That is, that we belong to God and hence to one another. May God bless us all. Let's pray. As we get into a time of response, I'd like to invite us to examine our hearts and to ask ourselves, how generous are we with our time, with our money, with our gifts, talents, and skills, with paying attention to others, praying for them? If we are honest, for many of us, we are able to receive from the church, but we are not able to give sacrificially and joyfully. It does not come naturally to us, even though we recognize that the grace of Christ dwells in us. Sometimes, we wouldn't even know who needs what, or who we will offend, or where to begin. Or maybe you're waiting for someone to come and ask you to help. Are we able to give from what we have? Trusting God to abound in his blessings, so that we can abound in doing good? Do we reflect the love of God? Are we becoming more like Christ in our love for others? Let us first ask God for giving us awareness and attention and sensitivity to the needs of the church and to others. Maybe the message of Paul regarding the Corinthians and the Macedonians will speak to us. Maybe God will use you today to give someone a smile or a kind word or a prayer that will bless them. Maybe God will inspire you to sign up for the children's ministry or the youth ministry. Let us ask God for something profound to be done and to take place here at ICC. Let's spend a couple of minutes in silent prayer, searching our hearts and hearing God speak to us, and then we will come to the Lord's table.